Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Wednesday, November 29th, 2017, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. MSNBC host Lawrence O'Donnell discusses his book, Playing with Fire, the 1968 Election and the Transformation of American Politics. And now, enjoy the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. Let's see if that moves up. Okay. And the teleprompter. Oh, no. Oh, oh, oh they didn't tell me this. There's, there's, there's nothing there. Uh, I am here tonight uh, thanks entirely to a member of our audience tonight who is my honored guest down here in the front row, Elizabeth Moynihan, uh, the wife of Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan. And she's always my honored guest whenever I do anything within walking distance of her home, which, which this is. So in, in 1987, uh, toward the end of 1987, uh, I was beginning my struggling career as a screenwriter uh, on various Hollywood projects that weren't getting anywhere. And the Writers Guild uh, went into what became a six-month strike. And... Uh, and, and Liz Moynihan, who I knew, uh, invited me into the Moynihan re-election campaign, where she was the campaign manager for the 1988 Moynihan re-election campaign here. And her idea was, to, was that I was to be the other guy, because that's all you needed to re-elect Daniel Patrick Moynihan <laughs> in New York State then. He had won a, something like 67% of the vote in his first re-election campaign. This was the second re-election campaign, which he got 68% of the vote. Absolutely no thanks to me. I just sat there uh, and watched in awe this front row seat uh, in American politics. Uh, and, and it was Liz and Pat who did it. It was referred to as a mom and pop campaign. And, and that was my beginning. That was my first introduction to, to professional, what we could call professional politics. My, my introduction to American politics was the 1968 presidential election because I was in high school then uh, and the country was going haywire and uh, it was all being televised and it was all highly political. Uh, but I would, not, I would not be here. I would not be writing about politics. I would not have been hired as a writer for the West Wing if I hadn't had that professional experience, which only Liz Moynihan thought was a good idea. There was no one working in the senator's Washington office who could understand why this guy who knows nothing about politics, why is he in this campaign? Uh, and so I was very lucky, and I approached it w- with a purely Plimptonian attitude. Uh, you remember how George Plimpton used to do things that he had no ability to do, 
no understanding of, no skills at, and then write a book about it. So he would go and he'd go uh, and do uh, training with the Detroit Lions, you know, football team, the NFL football team. And, and in the training camp, he would run one play as a quarterback, one play. And from that, he would turn out a great book, Paper Lion, which I read when I was in high school and was turned into a, a really good movie. And so I just had this Plimptonian notion about this thing. I would, uh, you know, I'd follow the great man around and maybe there'd be something to write about that. And that turned into uh, about eight years uh, with Liz and Pat Moynihan and, and uh, about seven years on the Senate staff including running the uh, committee's staff that when uh, Senator Moynihan became chairman of, of a couple of committees, including finally the finance committee. And so the knowledge that I was able to bring to uh, this subject that I lived through as a high school student uh, is all thanks to Liz. It's all thanks to, to Pat, who was a, a daily uh, Harvard graduate seminar in politics and in governing, uh, and I had the benefit of that. And so there are, there are moments that I came across in this story where I, I just uh, inserted my authority on a matter, uh, and that authority was gained entirely because uh, Liz Moynihan had a crazy idea uh, of many years ago. Uh, the, the book is, um, it's a, it is a, a work of history, uh, but it, it, there's an eyewitness component to it. And as I said, it was... It's a high school kid uh, sitting on the floor in the living room because my older brothers had all the good seats and were watching things like uh, the president of the United States suddenly announced that he's not going to run free election. This stunning moment that we can all remember the, the, the line, I shall not seek and will not accept. We have it memorized for the rest of our lives. And, and then the, the, the stunning upset of, of Gene McCarthy uh, in New Hampshire, which predated Lyndon Johnson's decision not to run and provoked his decision not to run, as did Bobby Kennedy's entry into the campaign. And then Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination, followed by rioting that we hadn't seen in the United States before, followed two months later by Bobby Kennedy's assassination, followed months after that by a, a convention that we'd never seen before, rioting in the streets and smaller versions of rioting inside the convention hall. Uh, any one of those things, any one of the things I just mentioned, would have been the largest event of any other presidential campaign year. Any one of those things. Mike Wallace, Dan Rather getting slugged on the floor of the Democratic National Convention on TV while Walter Cronkite is left speechless in the booth would have been the biggest event at any other convention in history. And that was just Wednesday of that week. That's all that was. Because on Wednesday of that week, what was happening out in the streets of Chicago was much more important. And everyone understood that, including people like Dan Rather and, and uh, Mike Wallace, who were inside the hall. Uh, and, and so it, 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 what drew me to it was it is simply the most dramatic non-fiction presidential campaign story that I know. And I would submit that the last one that we saw in 2016 both uh, borrowed templates that were created in 1968 uh, and, and in that sense uh, was a standard campaign and, and really was distinguished only by one extremely eccentric candidate. 
everyone else was uh, behaving according to playbooks that had been established long before they got into presidential campaigning, including that surge we saw on the left side of the Democratic Party against the establishment, the Bernie Sanders path, which was simply the map laid out by Gene McCarthy when Bernie Sanders was 27 years old and living in Vermont and watching Gene McCarthy go up to New Hampshire. Uh, and so I want to give you a, a sense of, of some of the, the first-person elements of, of this book, the, the, the eyewitnessing of it, because I know a lot of you were eyewitnesses uh, to it, too. And, and when you look back on it now, especially when you manage to dig out uh, all this research that I, that I came up with, that I, I found, uh, everything looks different. Uh, everything that I thought I saw looks different, including the great, the great Gene McCarthy win in New Hampshire. I'm a, I'm a high school kid in Boston, and my older brothers are of draft age, and they're desperately worried about the Vietnam War. And my brother Kevin has gone up to New Hampshire. He's gotten clean for Gene. He's shaved his uh, beard, and he's cut his hair, and he got a necktie and a blue blazer and went up to New Hampshire and knocked on the doors for Gene McCarthy because he didn't want to get drafted, and he didn't want to go to Vietnam, and, and he wanted this war to end. And Gene McCarthy had put the war in the ballot. That was what his mission was. And, and I thought, in all that tumultuous coverage of the New Hampshire primary, that Gene McCarthy won. And I thought that for decades. And it was one of the embarrassing Moynihan moments for me. Uh, when by this time, I was deep into working in the Senate, and I had acquired much more trust than I deserved from Daniel Patrick Moynihan. And we're walking down the hall of the Russell Senate office building, and apropos, I'm not sure what. I simply remember the embarrassment. I let slip a reference to, I think this was uh, probably in the 1992 campaign, and we were about to go up to New Hampshire. I was about to go up to New Hampshire as a professional uh, during a presidential campaign for the very first time in my life. And I said something about Gene McCarthy winning New Hampshire. <laughs> to which the senior senator from New York had to say, came in second. And, and he didn't turn and he didn't look because he was shielding me the embarrassment of, in, in every way he could, shielding me the embarrassment of being so wrong. But that was the sensation when Gene McCarthy got 42% of the vote. And Lyndon Johnson, whose name was not even on the ballot, still actually won with a write-in uh, campaign. And his name wasn't on the ballot because a sitting president was not supposed to be in presidential primaries. Uh, Barack Obama didn't have any presidential primaries uh, when his re-election uh, term came. Uh, and so there are all sorts of illuminations uh, for me in here. But I, but I want to begin by just giving you uh, a sense of what I know a lot of you uh, remember, and that is life in 1968. Uh, and what was at stake in 1968, which was unique in our politics uh, for the very first time. Uh, this was to be a presidential election unlike any other that we'd ever had for a very simple reason, and that was that the election was going to be about life and death. And the big suspense politically for everyone who was considering running for president was, what will Bobby do? Lyndon Johnson feared... Bobby running for president. He actually feared Bobby possibly 
trying to get the nomination in 1964, four years earlier, which, uh, which I wasn't aware of until I dug into this. Uh, but he, Lyndon Johnson feared Bobby terribly. Richard Nixon feared Bobby. He'd already lost to a Kennedy. He knew what that felt like. He knew what he'd be up against. Uh, and Al Lowenstein, a gadfly on the liberal side of the Democratic Party, was going around looking for someone to dump Johnson, as they called it. He wanted a Democrat, a credible Democrat, to run for the nomination uh, so that the, the war would be on the ballot. And he wanted Bobby. That's who it should be. Uh, and when Bobby thought about it and uh, turned him down, Al Lowenstein didn't give up. And Bobby thought about it again, and he turned him down. And then Al Lowenstein started going around to other senators. He went to Gene McCarthy, and Gene McCarthy said, you should talk to Bobby Kennedy. He said, I've talked to Bobby Kennedy. Gene said, well, you should talk to George McGovern. George McGovern said, you should talk to Gene McCarthy. No one wanted to do this, and everyone thought the person who should do it is Bobby. Uh, and so uh, th that's the world Bobby was living in, in this post-JFK assassination, where there was tremendous pressure on him uh, to consider jumping into this presidential race. And in 1967, pretty much everywhere he went, uh, every time he gave a speech, the, uh, the crowd would just start to chant, run, Bobby, run. And Bobby had a movie star's smile, but when he smiled, his audiences believed they were seeing a grieving man who was somehow strong enough to smile through his pain. Bobby was the only politician whose smile could make people's eyes tear. And with those tears in their eyes, when they looked up at Robert Francis Kennedy, they were always seeing John Fitzgerald Kennedy. For them, justice demanded that RFK take JFK's seat behind the desk in the Oval Office. History demanded it. No politician in our history ever had such an advantage or such a burden. Run, Bobby, run. Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon, the most ruthless Democrat and the most ruthless Republican, feared that dream. Bobby was almost certain the challenging Johnson was hopeless, but it might be the only way to put pressure on the president to de-escalate the Vietnam War. The chance, the dream, the war, and anti-war Democrats privately urging him to do it all contrived to get Bobby thinking about it. It was a rerun of the way he had approached running for the Senate three years earlier. At first he resisted, then he wavered, then he resisted again, then he wavered again. All the while, Johnson and Nixon and the others believed that Bobby held history in his hands. Bobby did not yet realize the 1968 election would be about nothing less than life and death. In the nuclear age, all presidential elections were, by implication at least, about life and death because the commander-in-chief had the power to start World War III in minutes by launching nuclear missiles. But the 1968 election was going to be about the life and death of people we knew. In the spring of 1968, my cousin John T. Corley Jr. graduated from West Point, then visited us in Boston before he shipped out to Vietnam. Johnny was the tallest among us, six feet four inches, a West Point football star. We worried that he would be an easy target in Vietnam. Johnny wasn't worried. He grew up on army bases with his father, a general, and was trained for combat and eager to try to rival his father's World War II and Korean War records 
which filled their home with 26 awards and decorations, including a record-setting eight silver stars. My oldest brother, Michael, showed Johnny his draft notice, which had just arrived in the mail. Michael was worried. He didn't want to go to Vietnam. No one we knew wanted to go, except Johnny. He wanted a career in the Army like his father, and combat was part of that. Johnny advised Michael that the best way to avoid Vietnam might be to voluntarily enlist before being drafted, because then he might get a better choice of assignments. Getting drafted was the fastest route to Vietnam. Michael took Johnny's advice, enlisted, got easy assignments in the Army, and never left the United States. Johnny arrived in Vietnam on May 9, 1968. Over the course of that summer, his letters to Michael began to question the wisdom of the mission in Vietnam. Johnny earned a silver star in four months. On September 8, 1968, the day he was killed in action, his funeral was the first military funeral I attended. Tragedy has many faces, but none quite like a general crying, saluting his son's coffin. It was just another day in the life of America in 1968. The presidential election could end all that if Bobby ran on ending the war in Vietnam and won as anti-war Democrats were assuring him he could. I was in high school in 1968, and I never heard my brothers and their college-age friends talk about career planning. They only talked about how to deal with the draft and Vietnam. There was no long-term planning, no career hopes and dreams. Life was a short-term game for many young men in 1968. It was as if they were prisoners who would only begin to think about life on the outside when they got outside. Their prison was in their pocket, the draft registration card that controlled their lives and blocked their hopes and dreams. The presidential election could end all that. The presidential election was a matter of life and death for real people we all knew. That meant that this time running for president didn't have to be about ego. It meant that running for president couldn't simply be a matter of political calculation. It meant that it wasn't just about what was best for Bobby's future in politics. It was about life and death. The death Bobby thought about was his own. He worried that announcing his candidacy might tempt an assassin. He knew assassination was driven more by madness than logic, and maybe getting the second Kennedy on his way to the presidency would capture an assassin's twisted imagination. He was the only potential candidate who had to worry about a copycat assassin going for another Kennedy. And so Bobby's thinking about running was muddled and slow. He was leaning against running most of the time. As he thought about it, Bobby, who had been the manager of his brother's winning presidential campaign, could see every detail of what could go wrong with his own, but he could not yet see what the election was going to be about, life and death. And so Bobby held history in his hands for so long that someone who could see what the election was going to be about, decided he couldn't wait any longer, and grabbed history out of Bobby's hands. Someone no one expected to seize the moment until he did. And that was, of course, Senator Eugene McCarthy. He was the pebble that started rolling down the mountain that created this avalanche that became the 1968 campaign and that, that final election. Um, Bobby Kennedy 
was, as I say, Lyndon Johnson's worst nightmare. Uh, and it, it, it was pretty constant all the way through their relationship. In 1964, which was to be Lyndon Johnson's triumphant convention in which, as the sitting president, he would be nominated, having become president after the assassination, Uh, the one thing he feared was Bobby Kennedy's presence at the convention. So he tried to limit it. He tried to put it in as a a less visible spot in the convention, but there there was nothing Johnson could do about the importance of Bobby Kennedy taking the stage in 1964. And so Johnson's frustration in the 1964 uh, convention was a Bobby Kennedy frustration. On the convention's last night, the Democrats showed a short film honoring JFK. Bobby was scheduled to make a short speech before the film. As he came to the podium, the hall went wild. The applause and cheering went on and on. It wouldn't stop. Television commentators were speechless. No one had ever seen anything like it. Bobby didn't even try to speak. He waited, looking bashful. When he tried to speak, the applause and cheers got louder. 22 minutes. The longest ovation anyone there had ever seen. Bobby knew it wasn't for him. It was for the assassinated president who should have been there running for his second term. Bobby quoted Romeo and Juliet. When he shall die, take him and cut him out into stars, and he shall make the face of heaven so fine that all the world will be in love with night and pay no worship to the garish sun. Then Bobby promised his party He was looking not only to the past, but to the future. The place exploded again. It was the most moving moment ever seen on an American political stage. It was the rawness of the emotion, the intimacy of the reverential love, and Bobby's open, nearly shy reading of Shakespeare that made his speech the glory of the convention. Was LBJ the garish son Unworthy of worship when compared to the face of heaven? Even someone less paranoid than Johnson might have taken that moment as a declaration of war. The truth of what Johnson just saw was not something he could comprehend or imagine. It was not the clever trick of a speechwriter trying to poke an opponent. No political speechwriter in 1964, would want their man invoking Juliet's blend of female passion, worship, and yearning. Adding the Juliet passage was not Bobby's idea. It was Jackie's. She had read the speech in draft and at the last minute added the passage. The grieving widow put a female voice in Bobby Kennedy's beatification of Jack Kennedy. She gave Bobby the words that would mythologize Jack and Bobby at the same time. It is surprises like that, uh, the role of the backstage women, that fascinate me uh, more than I was allowed to double underline in this text. Uh, And they're, they're 
this is a, a subject that has fascinated me ever since uh, Liz Moynihan lured me into her world. Uh, Liz is the most uh, most powerful of the backstage women that, that I've known because she was the actual campaign manager. Uh, none of the women in this uh, story have that title. Uh, the and, But Jackie Kennedy's uh, relationship to Bobby was really important uh, in, in his development uh, at post-assassination. Uh, and she, she functions in many ways uh, in, in the role of, of a candidate's wife at different times. But Ethel Kennedy at the same time is, is a fully functioning candidate's wife with just as much input, more input uh, than Jackie. Uh, but Jackie is in some scenes that, uh, that surprise me, uh, including this one, which is uh, the day Bobby Kennedy finally announces and Teddy Kennedy thought this was a crazy idea. You do not run against an incumbent president of your party. You should not do this. And in fact, the night before, uh, Teddy Kennedy went out to see Gene McCarthy uh, on the campaign trail trying to form some kind of deal, alliance, a non-combatant agreement between the two of the candidates as they go forward into the primaries. That didn't work. Uh, uh, Gene McCarthy uh, wanted none of that. And so uh, Teddy was back at Hickory Hill uh, early that morning. He flew all night to get back uh, to to Bobby's house, uh, where uh, soon enough uh, that morning, Saturday morning at 10 a.m. in the uh, in the Russell Senate Office Building, Bobby was going to announce his candidacy. At 7 a.m., Bobby was wandering around aimlessly in his pajamas. The announcement was only three hours away. Sorensen had taken over reconciling reconciling the drafts of the speech in light of Teddy's report of no cooperation from McCarthy. Someone asked where Bobby was. Upstairs, said Sorensen, looking for someone who agrees with him. Teddy threw up his hands. It was incredible. The whole thing, just crazy. Maybe they could still talk Bobby out of it. Maybe have him declare for McCarthy, then pick up McCarthy's delegates later. Bobby overheard the last part. He came through the French doors into the breakfast room and told them not to talk about it anymore. I'm going ahead, Bobby told them. He left to get dressed. Teddy took over. He has to be at his best at this goddamn press conference. We can't talk about it anymore, he said. And that was it. A barber came in to cut Bobby's hair. Cut it as close as you can, Teddy ordered him. Don't pay attention to anything he says. Cut off as much as you can. The day was warm and cloudy, and the Senate caucus room was packed with supporters, photographers, and reporters. Ethel led nine of the ten Kennedy kids to seats in the front row. Members of the old guard, such as Schlesinger, were standing in the crowd, as were members of the new guard. At 10 a.m., Bobby came to the microphone, accompanied by Frank Mankiewicz. Robert F. Kennedy, lacking any campaign staff, national organization, committed delegates, or promised support, announced his intention to challenge Lyndon Johnson in some of the primaries. Bobby denied running against anyone personally. There was, he implied, no vendetta with Johnson. He praised McCarthy's success in glowing terms. That was Schlesinger's draft. Bobby also talked about Watts and Mississippi, Vietnam, the anger and outrage of young people. He concluded his speech on a note of JFK-era triumphalism. It was a Ted Sorensen line that sounded to the younger Kennedy staff like the imperialism they were fighting against. 
At stake, Bobby said, is our right to be, is our right to the moral leadership of this planet. At the press, as the press conference began, a reporter said, there has been speculation that this is opportunism on your part. And his question was deliberately drowned in a roar of supporters' cheers. This was to be a celebratory occasion, not an interrogation. The second Kennedy presidential campaign was launched. A few days later, Jackie Kennedy took Arthur Schlesinger aside at a dinner party in New York. Do you know what I think will happen to Bobby, she asked. Schlesinger waited for her answer, for her to answer her own question. The same thing that happened to Jack, she said. Abigail McCarthy, as I read this research, never had the title campaign manager, uh, but she functioned as something awfully close to that. And there was a time when the campaign apparatus for Jean McCarthy was working so badly that a group of women that Abigail had assembled at their home in Washington was actually the only effective apparatus they had going for a while. Uh, and Abigail uh, McCarthy had a, a strong relationship with uh, President Johnson's wife, having both been Senate wives. And in those days, that, that bond was stronger than it is now. Uh, and I'm just going to read you a passage of that fateful moment that I already referred to, which was when the President of the United States shocked the nation by announcing he was not going to run for re-election. And uh, no one knew he was going to do this. Uh, the staff that was involved in assembling and putting the speech together was supposed to be a speech about Vietnam and the future of Vietnam policy, and it was supposed to have some dramatic announcements about Johnson's uh, attempt to redirect uh, Vietnam policy in, tr in an attempt to de-escalate the war, if he could. Uh, the Defense Secretary, Secretary of State were heavily, heavily involved in the drafts, and they were sitting there watching the speech. LBJ had arranged with Lady Bird a signal. It would be a hand signal. It would be outside of the frame of the camera where he would raise his hand like that, and that meant he was going to go through with it. He was going to go through with the surprise ending of the speech, something he had not fully decided uh, until he was into the speech and actually did that signal uh, that Lady Bird over there was the only one who understood what it meant. At the White House, Clark Clifford and Dean Rusk leaned forward, suddenly realizing that they were not the final authors of this speech. There is division in the American House now. Believing this as I do, LBJ said, I have concluded that I should not permit the presidency to become involved in the partisan divisions that are developing in this political year. Then, with all the sudden shock of a lightning bolt, it all made sense. Accordingly, Johnson said, calmly, smoothly, eyes level with the camera, I shall not seek and will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as president. Every TV and radio in America that was turned on had people staring at it in stunned disbelief. Could they possibly have just heard what they just heard? Drivers pulled to the side of the road to wait for someone on the radio to repeat what they thought the president had just said. Families hugged their draft-age boys. Cheers shook the windows of college dormitories everywhere. Conservatives looked on sadly at another win for the liberals, a softening of American military power. McCarthy was winding up his speech when someone in the crowd yelled, he's not running, he's not running, 
Reporters mobbed the stage and stopped the speech to get a statement from McCarthy. He compared the collapse of his former friend's presidency to Greek tragedy. McCarthy rushed from the auditorium to a series of late-night network affiliate TV studios to give his response to the history-changing decision of the president not to seek re-election. The partying at McCarthy's hotel wasn't going to end anytime soon. The McCarthy kids had dumped Johnson. And they forced Johnson into a reversal on Vietnam, a bombing halt and a de-escalation with no preconditions. The impossible quest McCarthy had committed himself to after that Katzenbach hearing the year before had worked. As he made the TV rounds that night, it was occurring to McCarthy that Johnson might actually feel relieved, liberated, to have finally put the good of the nation above personal ambition. When McCarthy finally got back to the hotel, he went to Mary McGrory's room. They celebrated as only the McCarthy team would with poetry. They they recited some Robert Lowell, then some Yeats. McCarthy began reciting his own poetry. Blair Clark started transcribing McCarthy's poems on McGrory's typewriter as McCarthy spoke, and the pandemonium of the kids' celebration filled the halls of the hotel. Bobby Kennedy's flight home was in the air during LBJ's speech. As soon as the plane landed at LaGuardia, Bobby's staff rushed onto the plane, pushing their way through deplaning passengers to tell him the news. You're kidding, was all he could manage. The same thing Bobby had said when he was told Gene McCarthy was running for president. Once at home, Bobby said, as if talking to himself, I wonder if he would have done this If I hadn't come in, the campaign staff was popping corks and celebrating at his apartment. Bobby saw nothing to celebrate in the collapse of a presidency. He tried to watch the news on TV. He was pensive. Finally, Ethel said he didn't deserve to be president anyway. Only one person at the McCarthy Hotel in Milwaukee thought of something else. The first call Lyndon Johnson received after announcing his withdrawal from the campaign came from Abigail McCarthy. She made the call on impulse, intending to ask for Lady Bird. They'd known each other, apart from their husbands, as members of the Senate Wives Club, which developed much closer bonds than the gender-neutral remnant of it that exists today. Abigail wanted to say something positive about Lyndon. Abigail was startled when the president came on the line before handing the phone to the first lady. Abigail told him how much she admired his sacrifice. Honey, Lyndon Johnson said, I'm just one little person. Not important what happens to me. The final piece I'd like you to... to Recall, because I think this will be a a shared memory of much of this, and then we're going to go to questions. Um, There there are so many what-ifs in this this year and in this book. And the biggest what-if, of course, is what if Gene McCarthy had not run for president? Uh, There are others. What What if Bobby Kennedy had left the stage on the other side? What if he had left on the side he was supposed to leave on instead of that last-minute switch of plans to go off that side to meet some reporters over there because Sirhan Sirhan was standing right there? What if he'd gone the other way? 
Uh, there, and in an election that was won by Richard Nixon by less than 1% of the vote, Hubert Humphrey has an endless list of what-ifs. Uh, and any one of these could have changed dramatically uh, our, the outcome and our history. The biggest what-if of all is what if Eugene McCarthy had not run? If Gene McCarthy hadn't run, Bobby Kennedy would not have run and would not have been assassinated on the night of the California primary. President Johnson would, would have run for re-election. Election night would have come down to Johnson versus Nixon. No matter what the outcome, Bobby Kennedy surely would have run for president as the anti-war candidate in 1972. And then, but Gene McCarthy did run. He made the bravest decision of any candidate in 1968, a decision that changed his party, changed the campaign, changed the anti-war movement into an important faction of the Democratic Party, and changed the course of history. The most important thing Gene McCarthy did in 1968 was save lives. We have no idea when the Vietnam War would have ended if Gene McCarthy hadn't made ending the war a presidential campaign issue in 1968. The war ended seven years after McCarthy ran. If the first anti-war presidential candidate did not run until 1972, would the war have ended seven years later? In 1979? We don't know. The peace movement won. The peace movement drove U.S. forces out of Vietnam, not the North Vietnamese army. American politics responds slowly to protests, so it took several years for the peace movement to win. Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger complained for the rest of their lives that they were not able to achieve what they called peace with honor in Vietnam because congressional support for the war kept dropping. That is a complaint about democracy. More and more members of Congress turned against the war because of the peace movement. Their voters forced them to turn against the war. The Nixon-Ford administration would not have declared an end to the war in 1975 if the peace movement hadn't forced them to. The last man to die for a mistake would not have been killed in Vietnam on April 29, 1975. Would that man have been killed in 1976? In 77, 78, 79, how many more would have died? The millions of women and men who were active in the peace movement saved lives by forcing the war to end sooner than it would have if they hadn't taken to the streets in protest, something most of them have never done before for anything. Martin Luther King Jr. saved lives by raising his singular voice against the war. Bobby Kennedy saved lives by adding his anti-war voice to the growing chorus when it was still a politically risky choice. Al Lowenstein, Tom Hayden, John Kerry, and other leaders of the anti-war movement saved lives Abigail McCarthy and her daughter Mary saved lives. There are thousands of Americans who owe their lives to people who forced the United States to get out of Vietnam on April 30th, 1975. I received a draft notice in December 1972. I was in college. Two weeks later, I had to report for my physical exam at an Army facility in South Boston. The place was filled with young men standing in line for their physicals. 
Some had doctor's letters that they hoped would disqualify them. Others were going to pretend to be gay or mentally ill to get disqualified. I passed the physical and went home to wait for my induction notice to arrive in the mail, telling me exactly when to report for duty. And then, about a week before my induction notice was supposed to arrive, President Nixon ended the draft on January 27, 1973. If Gene McCarthy had not run for president in 1968, the draft would not have ended in 1973. None of the young men I saw at the induction center that day were killed in Vietnam because the political pressure of the anti-war movement forced Nixon to end the draft. Many of the young men I saw at the induction center went on to have children and grandchildren who don't know that they owe their lives to the people who stopped the draft and the war. There are thousands of families living in Vietnam today who wouldn't be there if the war had continued for another year or two or three. The last word about Gene McCarthy should always be that no one did more to stop the killing in Vietnam than Senator Eugene McCarthy. If I have to run for president to do it, I'm going to do it. Senator Eugene McCarthy, August 17th, 1967. And if there are questions, this is the time. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm, go I'm going to try to give quick answers to these to get through uh, as many of them as I can. Um, what parallels do you see between the division in the country in 1968 and today? Uh, 1968 was much worse, much, much, much worse. Uh, and just ask anyone who went to one of the uh, 16,589 military funerals in the United States that year, one year, one year, 1968, 16,000. 589. And just as a matter of numeric scale, in the entire 21st century of military engagement by the United States in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in the entire 16 years of it, we have had 6,883 killed in action, less than one half of 1968. Uh, the, uh, the violence that we saw in America, the rioting that we saw in America uh, in 1968 is unlike anything uh, that, that we have seen on a, uh, since. It's, it's a scale that we've never seen since. Uh, and that threat, that threat to every family, that threat to your boyfriend that that little card in his pocket could get him killed in Vietnam, that threat to your grandson, that threat to your brother, uh, we don't feel that. And, and because we don't feel that, uh, we get to concentrate on other things. But, you know, I, I had this conversation on, uh, uh, on election night and the next day uh, with my daughter who was in college and, and uh, her, dorm, her, her whole dorm was crying and not the only dorm where that was happening on election night 2016. And I did my little talk about 
Um, it was worse. Uh, you know, um, that talk that you never quite anticipate doing yourself uh, uh, when you're in college, that there will come a day when you're the guy saying it used to be worse. And so I do the 1968 thing, and she listens to it, and she's a history and literature major, and so she gets it, and she says, well, this is our Vietnam. And she's right. It, what she, the feeling is so similar. The feeling is so dark for the people who were disappointed uh, with the election uh, result on election night, which is to say a very significant majority of the United States of America. Um, and that majority has only increased as the disapproval of this presidency has increased every day of this presidency. And so there's a darkness, uh, there's a basic darkness to the feeling uh, that is very, very similar uh, to the feelings of 1968. But... Uh, I can make a case that 68 was worse. If Humphrey had spoken out against the war earlier, do you think he would have won the election? Yes. Uh, he lost by less than 1% of the vote. His big struggle was differentiating himself from Lyndon Johnson on Vietnam. He finally did it. Uh, and if he had literally, if he had done it a week earlier, he would have won because when he did it, you saw his numbers go like that. And, uh, you know, the, the, the cry in the Humphrey campaign was one more day because the momentum was for Humphrey was going this way. And Nixon's uh, momentum was going the opposite way. And the lines were going to cross if you just had one more day, uh, which they didn't have. Um, did the Bobby Kennedy assassination help or uh, help or hinder the Humphrey candidacy? Uh, I think Bobby Kennedy, uh, I believe, would have ended up with the nomination if he had lived because Humphrey was a terrible, terrible candidate uh, leading up to the convention and every day of the convention. And he didn't find his voice until too late. And he and 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 so Bobby and, and remember, Hubert Humphrey lost to Richard Nixon by less than 1% of the vote. And Hubert Humphrey was a terrible candidate and an underfunded candidate. Uh, Larry O'Brien came in to take over the campaign at one point, and the big discovery was there was absolutely no money, and Nixon had all this money, and he was on TV. Bobby Kennedy would have had that money, and uh, Bobby Kennedy would, would not have had the flawed performance as a candidate. And so I now believe that I mean, the question is simply, could Bobby Kennedy have gotten one more percent of the vote than Hubert Humphrey? And I think the answer is yes. Um, uh, were there any dirty tricks in the 1968 election? Uh, only the dirtiest trick in the history of American politics uh, by Richard Nixon, who did indeed collude with a foreign government uh, to win the election. He colluded with the South Vietnamese government to uh, tell them not to uh, join any peace talks in Paris that Lyndon Johnson was seriously starting to get going, uh, and they were the they were the result of that speech he gave, where he he set a new course for Vietnam, and he dropped out of the race. He went to work trying to put together Paris peace talks. Nixon needed one thing. He firmly believed he needed one thing on election day, and he needed the Vietnam War to be going and to be going very very badly. The worst thing for Nixon would be delegations from North Vietnam and South Vietnam at a table in Paris on election day. That would be the worst thing. And Lyndon Johnson believed a week before the, uh, the election that he finally had the sides together. Soviet Union secretly helped uh, put this together, and South Vietnam uh, agreed to, uh, to send their delegation to Paris in three days. Uh, Nixon had a secret communication channel to the South Vietnamese embassy and to the South Vietnamese government. He used that channel uh, to tell them, hang on, 
uh, don't go. You'll get a better deal with me. Um, and the evidence of this started to develop uh, long after the Nixon presidency. It started to come out. Um, and there's a tremendous amount of evidence of it. The CIA figured it out while it was happening. They presented this to the president, to President Johnson in the last week of the election. Uh, he then ordered some extra wiretaps, uh, and the FBI picked up uh, all this wiretapped conversation with the South Vietnamese embassy, and they had him cold. They had this thing cold. And so Johnson was faced with a, a horrible presidential decision which is what to do about this. And his, he, he, he tried to work at old school. Uh, he called up Republican Senator Dirksen, who he trusted greatly, and told him the whole, basically the whole story. This is what I have, um, and this is what I know, and it's treason. That's the word LBJ used. And we have all this on audio tapes of the phone calls of, of LBJ with Dirksen uh, and LBJ with Nixon, which was a later phone call. And LBJ's hope was that Dirksen would tell Nixon, you got to stop. This is crazy. You know, uh, LBJ knows what you're doing. Uh, Nixon didn't scare easily, uh, and he knew how much was at stake. Uh, and Nixon, you know, kept interfering. Uh, then LBJ gets on the phone with Nixon, and and he tries he, – he's, he's in a terrible bind because he doesn't want to say to him, this is what I have. I have these wiretaps. This is what the CIA has told me. He can't, he can't turn over all his cards. Uh, but he tries to scare Nixon, and Nixon doesn't scare. He hangs up the phone and he laughs, and his uh, his staff laughs at LBJ's attempt to to scare him about this. And so Nixon uh, does hang on. And after the South Vietnamese delegation had agreed to go to Paris in three days, they changed their minds and told the president they're not going to go. They 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 can't do it. They're not going to go. And so uh, Nixon's collusion worked, uh, and. And, and the final, you know, kind of – this had all been nailed down pretty well by the CIA and the FBI. Uh, my friend Jack Farrell, who's written the definitive biography of Richard Nixon that came out just this year. Uh, Jack's a former uh, Washington correspondent for the Boston Globe. Jack found Bob Haldeman's handwritten notes uh, in, in the archives of Richard Nixon saying to Bob Haldeman, here is what to say to the South Vietnamese. And it's uh, hold on, and you know what monkey wrench can I throw into this? And it's it's very it's Nixon's own words, um, and so that uh, that is the remains the dirtiest trick in a, in American history because what you had was a presidential candidate who was on his way to becoming president who the one thing he needed was more American soldiers to die in Vietnam and to be dying in Vietnam on election day, and his decision was to make sure that happened. Do you see a parallel between the treasonous actions of Nixon to turn the 1968 presidential election against U.S. interests and the campaign uh, operatives of Donald Trump who colluded with the foreign power to influence the 2016 election. That's why I used the word collusion in my last answer. Uh, yeah, this would be, this would be a, a parallel case. And it would be the, the, it, to, if, if something of that is sort is discovered, it would be the second such case. But it would not be, uh, a presidential candidate saying, doing everything he could to make sure more American soldiers were being killed on election day. Uh, how influential was the media coverage in determining the outcome of the 1968 election? Are we better or worse off today with our increasingly varied media outlets? Uh, you've asked just the most 
perfectly objective possible <laughs> respondent to that question. Um, the, it, it, the media, you could argue, uh, was, uh, was not terribly important in the 1968 election. And, and, I, and I think we can argue that only now. Uh, because uh, we now see that the media doesn't share a concept called fact, that that's not an agreed-upon notion from one media outlet to another. And in 1968, it was. And, and so uh, you didn't get a totally different uh, interpretation of the thing you just saw uh, from one network versus the other network. Uh, and you didn't have a, yet another network telling you the thing you just saw you didn't see. And the words you just heard, you didn't hear. Or if those are the words, he didn't mean it. Like, he had none of that. Uh, and so it was, a, it was a cleaner delivery system of what was going on. Um, now, you know, the difference is that you didn't have C-SPAN literally covering every single speech that anybody gives in New Hampshire at every little, you know, town in New Hampshire. You didn't have access to that the way you do now. If you want to, you can, you can see just about every candidate's speech given in the New Hampshire primary somewhere online. Um, I, I, it doesn't, I don't feel that we're better off with the media structure we have now. doesn't feel like we're better off. And uh, I think it's a very complex issue. It's understandable how the media has grown the way it has. Um, Steven Spielberg has a movie coming out uh, in Christmas season called The Post. It's about the Washington Post's decision to join the New York Times in publishing the Pentagon Papers. And when you watch, uh, as, I've, and I've, as I've seen it, and it was actually uh, co-written by a former West Wing writer, so I was, I was reading the script as it was coming along, and it made me think that, uh, you know, this is, you're, you're making a movie about the American news media at its best. And to do that, you had to go to the 1970s. And... And I think that's that's an answer of sorts to are we better off uh, with with all this stuff we have now. I know I personally am better off uh, with the with the expansion teams of cable news. I I personally am better off. I I don't I can't claim that's good for the country. Um, if you could write the script for the West Wing now, <laughs> who would you cast as president? I don't have to answer that because luckily today. Uh, Twitter just told me that, uh, and I read it, there's a, uh, there's a Hollywood Reporter article out there where Aaron Sorkin, who has a new movie coming out, was asked this question. And he said he would cast uh, Sterling Brown, who is the African-American actor uh, in an NBC series now uh, who played Chris Darden. His big moment and award-winning moment was playing uh, Chris Darden in the O.J. Simpson miniseries. And Sterling Brown is just a, a fantastic actor who uh, I would just uh, quit this job and go join Aaron and, and write that series in a second uh, if we could do it. Sterling Brown also happens to be the name of the director of The Last Word with Lawrence O'Donnell. And so I... <laughs> And, and they, they look like brothers, those two guys. It's, it's amazing. Sterling Brown is the guy who, who keeps me going every night. Um, can the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962 instruct us with regard to the North Korean nuclear threat today? It, it, it only in the saddest possible way. Uh, and it's the guarantee that you, you would have had a nuclear strike on Cuba if you had a Trump in the White House and, uh, in, in, 
the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. It's uh, the the big the biggest fear I have, and 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 I guess it's the only fear because the other stuff is all as is all as bad as it as it looks. You know, the tax legislation is terrible, and uh, everything uh, that the president wants to do now is is a pretty terrible thing. But you can you can fix that. You you can raise you can. Go back and when the country regains its sanity and write a semi-sane tax bill uh, in the future. Uh, that, that can happen. There's nothing you can do if he makes a mistake in North Korea. There is nothing you can do. And so my uh, all of my worry energy about this presidency is spent on the North Korean issue and, and whether this can be the president who actually gets us into a nuclear exchange. In 1967-68, I was a college student, volunteer for Gene McCarthy. I don't want to read the rest of this. This uh, this terrifies me because this is someone I don't know who knows more about what's in this book than I do. <laughs> and this happened to me last night in Philadelphia. I, I was I was introduced uh, by a wonderful gentleman, Mr. In, in Philadelphia, uh, Mr. Kerr, who, who reveals that he was an intern in the Senate for Eugene McCarthy. And, and then he, you know, went on to work in the 68 campaign. And I'm listening to all of this and I'm horribly embarrassed that I never found him, uh, and interviewed him for this book. And then he gave me, uh, in his introduction, uh, what remains the most important review of this book yet. Uh, because he was hugely positive about it. And, and most importantly, he said that the book captures Gene, and Gene is the possibly the most complex, multi-shaded character in the book to try to capture. Uh, so, okay, I was a college student volunteer for Gene McCarthy. We were angry. Yes, we were angry when RFK entered the race, when he saw that LBJ was vulnerable in the early New Hampshire primary. Can you understand our anger at RFK? Yes, because I felt it. Uh, it looked opportunistic to me. Uh, I I shared that feeling, and yet I was torn as a you know Boston Irish little boy who uh, you know was was a Kennedy devotee. Uh, but now uh, my feelings have evened out about the whole thing uh, because I now understand all of Gene McCarthy's weaknesses. As a presidential candidate, he he didn't have the kind of fight that he needed at the right moments to get himself all the way. And 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 he, I think, in his own dark way, understood this uh, more than people realize. There were times when he was at, when he was flying into Chicago for the convention. Uh, he didn't have any campaign staff with him at all. They wouldn't allow them to be around him talking about strategy or anything like that. He had Robert Lowell with him. You know, he had, had, had his resident poet flying with him uh, and, and others uh, like that who had absolutely no uh, strategic contribution to make to how you get a nomination for president at a convention. Uh, and, and at a certain point on the plane, you know, he, he's, asked, he, he's asked something about, you know, winning. Uh, and Gene says uh, something to the effect of, who would want the job? And, and, and so, you know, at this point, you know, who would want the job? Now, in fairness to all this, the term midlife crisis had not been invented, but at 52 years old, Gene McCarthy went through a dramatic midlife crisis in 1968, and he had plenty of reason to. Uh, and, and the Bobby Kennedy assassination was the thing that knocked him off much more 
than Bobby Kennedy getting into the race. Uh, he really disliked Bobby Kennedy and uh, liked Teddy, disliked Bobby. Uh, and one of the intriguing moments, and I, the most poignant McCarthy moment in, in the whole thing, is at the convention uh, when he gets the idea. There's, there's a little bit of a murmur developing deep inside uh, the operations in, in Chicago that maybe Teddy Kennedy, maybe Teddy Kennedy should be drafted for the nomination. Uh, and Teddy Kennedy is 36 years old. Uh, this is a this is a a radical idea that 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 got an amazing amount of traction. And Gene McCarthy liked the idea, and he had a meeting uh, with Stephen Smith, who was uh, 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 Teddy Kennedy's brother-in-law, uh, about how to do this. And there's a moment where Gene says, "I can't make it." And it's the first moment where he's admitting out loud, I can't win this nomination. But for me, the resonance of I can't make it is someone who is realizing, I think, that he never could have made it. And he never could have made it because he doesn't have those qualities that he dislikes in the Kennedys. He doesn't have, uh, in, in his mind, the kind of ruthlessness, the kind of relentlessness, and in his, in his view of it, thoughtlessness, uh, that it takes to uh, force your way all, all the way to that point of the nomination. And that little plan, you know, uh, infant plan of Teddy getting the nomination fell apart uh, when it became public. Uh, it, it got leaked, and, and that made Kennedy, uh, Teddy Kennedy uh, drop out of any consideration of it, immediately called up Hubert Humphrey and said, I'm endorsing you. Um, and so I, there's so much more texture to this thing that looked like Gene McCarthy goes to New Hampshire. He wins. Bobby sees that, jumps in. Bobby was, in fact, planning to jump in before the, the uh, vote happened in New Hampshire. He was working on this. They had been working on it very deliberately uh, for the previous 10 days. But, you know, only after seeing Gene McCarthy's poll numbers go up so high. Uh, and so, uh, and, you know, and in the end, you know, Bobby Kennedy wins California, which was the ultimate test of the strength of a McCarthy versus a Kennedy going for the nomination. And so um, I shared that feeling of this looked completely opportunistic, and that's why the first question to Bobby at his press conference announcement was, isn't this opportunistic? Uh, and so I understand that feeling completely. I think if you have that feeling, uh, I would love you to get through this story and examine your feelings after that, because I don't think you'll be able to identify them very simply that way. Uh, do you and your staff confer with the earlier programs in the evening lineup at MSNBC as to what topics and guests you will have? I wish we could. Uh, it's done so much on the fly uh, that, um, that it is... Um, it's kind of impossible to do that. There's a certain sense of it. I mean, I have a certain sense, I know for an absolute fact, that whatever happens in the Russian investigation today, Rachel Maddow is going to cover that <laughs> uh, better than Robert Mueller will have covered it with his staff in whatever meeting they had that afternoon. Okay? 
So that's just a tremendous cushion for me, because I'm looking at the rest of the news, and I'm saying, okay, that's the most important thing that happened today, but there are these other half a dozen things, and we want to do you know, a bunch of them and maybe all of them, and then there's this thing I want to say that's unrelated to any of this at the end of the show, and how are we going to squeeze the minutes for that? And, and we can do you know, seven minutes on the Russia thing, because Rachel's done 32 brilliant minutes on it, and I only have an audience because people's remotes are broken after, uh, after Rachel says hello to me. They can't find the remote. And they, sit there and they go, well, they know about Russia. They, they listen to that. So, so you, you, know, you develop these things, and, I, and, and there's, certain, there's certain senses of, of, you know, of jurisdictions that I have uh, and all that. But it's, um, you know, the, the truth of it is you – I wondered about this very thing when I started doing this show, you know, because Keith Oberman was at eight, was at eight, Rachel was at nine, I was at ten, and I was thinking, well, what is what is left to say? You know, what is what is left to say? And it it turns out that um, you know, Chris Hayes now at eight, and Rachel at nine, and me at ten. We 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 see different things when we look at exactly the same thing. We see different things, you know, and. Um, and I always ask, I always have this tendency to ask for things. Uh, you know, if, if there's something happens, I will, I'll, I'll say, bring me the statute. And this is a, this is an old Moynihan lesson. You know, bring me the statute, meaning bring me the law. You know, someone is saying that this is a violation of law, uh, you know, that Trump cannot put his own person into running this agency without Senate confirmation. It will bring me, the, so I, I read the laws. I go, well, Mm, this is more complicated than I thought, you know, before I did it. And so I have a tendency to do, to go at things in a different angle. I mean, the other night, you know, there was this crazy thing with the president um, where he had the Navajo code talkers in the Oval Office. And he turns that into a horrible moment that we've seen him do before. And so I had come in late because I was doing some of this book stuff somewhere. I'm not sure where. And, um, and I said, well, let me see, let me see what happened. And they, they, they show me just the clips of what they'd been showing all day, which is just the Trump piece. And I see, you know, the code talkers there. I said, well, what did, what did they say right before he said that to him? So, and, and they said, well, they started playing it because no one had any idea what the code talkers, uh, what, what uh, Mr. McDonald, the leader of the code, code talkers had said. And, and they played me a few sentences. I said, no, no, just go all the way back. Let me see every word he said. And I sit there and I'm watching that. And I go, oh, well, that's the story. You know, the most presidential thing that has ever been said in the Trump Oval Office was said <laughs> by a 90-year-old World War II Marine Navajo code talker. Uh, we're going to do that. And, you know, so there's always, um, there's always something that differentiates it. But I'm just, I, you know, I, I live entirely on the people with the lost remotes. Um, so this is handwritten, and, and this is maybe going to be the favorite thing that's happened uh, at one of these events. I served with your brother Michael in the Army. How much did LBJ's health have to do with his not running? That's, that's a great question, but I've got to find you. Uh, Christine. Oh, right here. Oh, great. Um, great. Um, you know, LBJ did expected to live just about exactly as long as he did. Uh, his, his father had died young. He, he thought of himself as, as headed for that. 
Uh, he, you know, but, but, um, you combine that with another ladybird, uh, fact, which is she said, you know, uh, Lyndon always had his resignation letter ready to go. And there's a bunch of moments in his career, including in that, uh, Senate race, the, the, the Senate race that he won that made him a senator, where Lady Bird is stronger than Lyndon in terms of hanging in there. And you see this more than once in, in their relationship that he is ready to quit. Uh, and, and we didn't know that. There was no information then. There was no Robert Caro version of, you know, the Lyndon Johnson's uh, Senate campaign. And so you, 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 you couldn't be aware publicly of, of this possibility that the guy could just quit. Uh, you know, it's, it, when you, when you make that kind of decision, you, I, I, my experience is that, that politicians like to protect themselves from negative analysis of those decisions. And so a year later, did Lyndon Johnson believe that he made a health-based decision? Did he talk himself into that? He, he may well have. Uh, but, you know, uh, FDR was dying when he was running for president, and he knew it. His doctor told him, you better look at this vice presidential nominee very, very seriously because this guy's going to get the job. Uh, and so... Lyndon Johnson had as uh, as much desire to hold that office and to hold that office in the middle of a war, just like FDR. Uh, he had as much of that desire as FDR had. So I don't think the health uh, turned it. Uh, I, I think it is what happened that that he he couldn't figure out how to get out there and fight for a nomination because he was going to have to fight for it, and he really really did not do how to fight for a nomination against a Kennedy. That's, that's the part that he really did not know how to do. And so, um, and, and, you know, Johnson to me was just a, a bad guy. You know, high school students uh, who were against the war just saw him as nothing but a bad guy. He's, he is a truly uh, Shakespearean figure in this thing. And I have a lot of sympathies for how he ended up, where he ended up, how he got stuck and all of that. But ultimately, he simply did not have the kind of intellect it took and the kind of vision it took to understand uh, that that Vietnam was unlike anything we'd ever been engaged in before, and none of the thinking used in any previous war making was going to work. Lyndon Johnson was not the guy who was going to figure out a new way. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcasts. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.